Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. All right, so I want to welcome Garrett Vind to the podcast. Garrett's out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, he's a photographer, cinematographer. He's worked on a couple different projects that we'll get into, a couple different major projects, and uh, got some fantastic images. Garrett also works with a, another company that we'll talk about here in a little bit that kind of gives the photographer an advantage, uh, especially when photographing birds, but it can be used for several different species. So I want to welcome Garrett, and uh, thanks for giving us your time on the podcast this morning. Sure thing. Happy to be here. That's a good little lead-in. It's like keeping someone around. We're going to tell you about something that helps you become a better photographer. Everybody's going to just sit around and wait for that. Absolutely. Yeah, if only it was that easy. <laughs> the teaser, yeah. Yeah. So Garrett, give us give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, okay. how you got into the industry. You know, basically, like a lot of people, I've just been uh, super into nature, natural history, wildlife since I was a kid, and you know, through a, a long road of twists and turns through my life, um, trying to figure out how to make a living doing that. I've ended up now where I I work for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in New York um, remotely and work in a program there that just basically produces conservation media for organizations that basically can't don't have the capacity to produce high-end media so we we locate organizations or issues around the world where we have partners that we think can be you know have opportunities to create some you know meaningful change and try to produce very specific media pieces both film print whatever so that they can reach you know, very specific audiences to try to, to move the needle on whatever they're working on. So over the last several decade, I guess, I've been working on either ecosystem-based or very specific species-based stuff, often with critically endangered birds around the world. So I spent a lot of time filming endangered birds and, you know, other other landscapes that are under threat. And then, you know, the films and, and whatnot that we, we do are usually, they're not, you know, we're not trying to raise public awareness. We're trying to find very specific avenues to reach the decision makers. So we may be making a film that's only going to be seen by 20 people, but it's the right 20 people. So we're really, you know, focused and honed in on trying to, to make wildlife and conservation media that, you know, has meaningful impact on conservation. So that's kind of my main, my main, uh, area of focus right now. And then obviously, I've, you know, on the side, I continue with my, my personal photography and, and filmmaking as well. That's pretty awesome. What's an example of one of those projects that you could tell us about? Uh, well, one project that I'm just finishing up right now is I've been working on a bird called the greater adjutant. Um, it's this spectacular, crazy looking five and a half foot tall stork that used to live across, you know, all the way from Pakistan to Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, and now is down to about the last 1200 individuals and more than half of the remaining individuals pretty much spend most of their time in a garbage dump in Assam. Assam is the part of India kind of right up above Bangladesh near the Himalayan foothills. And there's a, a woman there who's been extremely effective, this incredible passionate woman named Purnima uh, Barman, who has really rallied the, the community where these birds nest every year to protect them. For the longest time, they've you know, over most of the range, they're persecuted. People think they're dirty. Uh, they cut down the trees they nest in. This community has completely embraced the birds. The, you know, the, since she started her work about 10 years ago, the number of nests there have gone up from like 22 nests to more than 200 last year. So we've been producing short films for her to get support for her work. Uh, so I went over there three times over the last two years spent a month in the garbage dump filming them in the garbage uh built a hundred foot bamboo tower and did the first filming of them ever in the nest um raising their young and then we you know did coverage of all her conservation activities with the community and all that kind of stuff so we've been producing films for her uh to get support for her work so that's a real specific um you know targeted conservation project and is that the audience for that, so those films, the audience, is that more of a, a form-based audience or is there a huge audience for that sort of thing here in the U.S.? Well, when we plan these projects, we plan them around what is the audience of impact 
you know, and then so in this case, it would be, you know, government officials, business people, NGOs working in the region that she can get on board to support her work. But as a byproduct of that, of course, we'll, you know, we're going to produce a short film that would be more a general interest thing to a international audience and that kind of thing. But the impetus behind doing it in the first place is to really hit those conservation goals first and then, you know, do the other stuff that you would do with that kind of media. Does that stuff make it to the public eventually? I mean, is that like, do you, do you house everything on a YouTube page or? Uh, no, we don't. Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of it on YouTube. Some of the stuff eventually it'll get there. Eventually my still photography on that project will be hopefully, you know, BBC wildlife or magazine like that. Um, so it does get that out there eventually, but we kind of hit the, the conservation stuff first and then, and then do that stuff secondarily. So that's kind of what I'm waiting on starting to work on now is getting that stuff out to a public audience. And the funding for a project like that, that all comes is uh, kind of filtered through the lab, the Cornell. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Mostly, you know, based on individual donors to the lab fund a lot of this kind of work. Yeah. Are you solo or do you have a team with you? Cause it sounds like a lot of work. Um, well, we, you know, in the, on the office, we have a team in New York, editors and, uh, associate producers and all that kind of stuff. Generally, I take at least one associate producer with me who handles a lot of logistics, you know, research, you know, you name it. Um, so that I can be freed up to do more just focused on the cinematography and photography. Yeah. Sweet. That's excellent. <clears throat> it's funny That's how, I mean, we all want to do this, right? And we all want to make, make a living at it. And it's, there's so many avenues out there and just finding that one. I mean, yours sounds pretty sweet. I mean, it sounds like a pretty interesting world travel, all kinds of stuff involved and you get to pursue your passion, but there's just so many avenues to do this sort of thing. Yeah. So many are so, so few, <laughs> you know, I, I often feel like I'm in such a niche that it's, you know, it's not like I could pick up and go, you know, do this work for somebody else. It's, it's a pretty unique situation to be able to do this work, um, have the kind of funding we have to do it and then that kind of thing. So, you know, if, if, when I do ever think about going out on my own and doing something else, it's pretty daunting to think about, you know, how do I, how do I replace my income <laughs> with somewhere else, you know? Yeah, I it's guess I didn't put that very well. I, I think you're right. I think it's hard to find that. I mean, there's a bunch of things out there. Finding the one that makes money is very difficult. Yeah, really. If money wasn't the case, I'd love to just get a van and go roam around for the next 15 years and <laughs> sleep in the woods and, and take photos. That would be a... We talk about be, that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. now is that you also had some images that were uh, from out in the Aleutian Islands as well, some... There was an auklet image, I think, that I saw. Um, mm -hmm. Is that the same type of trip you were doing out there? That's a little different. Some of that work, so I've, I've been doing work on St. George Island, which is the Pribilof Island that most people don't go to, and by far the more spectacular of the two main islands. And we've been doing some partnerships with different uh, federal agencies in Alaska. So I've been wor working on the Yukon Delta, working on the Pribilofs, and then working with the Alaska Maritime Refuge, which administers basically all the islands and the Bering Sea and the Aleutians and all the way down into southeast Alaska. So we've got a number of small projects we've been working on specifically with them. And kind of one of my little fantasies has been to pull that all together and cut some kind of bigger Bering Sea project, but it's so expensive to work up there. And the time window is so small that it's hard to get more than, you know, these kind of quick trips to go to some of these places, but it's, it's one of the most spectacular unexplored parts of our country that people just have no idea that it's, you know, even part of North America. Like it, it has the, one of the world's biggest marine mammal migrations go through. There are millions and millions of seabirds. Half of the fish we eat in this country every year come out of the Bering Sea. And it's, you know, one of these places that's rapidly, rapidly changing. So th there's a lot of opportunity for storytelling and capturing, you know, just this incredible, uh, abundance that still exists there, but kind of it's potentially on the precipice of you know, major change as the Bering Sea warms up and the sea ice disappears. And um, so I've also been working on, and this is another project that should come out in the next hopefully six months to a year uh, at Eisenbeck Refuge. Um, Eisenbeck Refuge is right at the end of the Alaska Peninsula, right before the Aleutians start. And it's the refuge where some 
folks have been trying to have a road put through the middle of a federal wilderness area, which is kind of unprecedented, potentially could impact wilderness areas throughout North America. And it's a refuge that a lot of people know the name of it, but very few, very little visual media exists of it. So we spent two six weeks, six week trips up there last late summer and fall filming bears and salmon and wolves and, uh, and then this place, Eisenbeck Lagoon, which is basically the whole Western population of Pacific Brant from the central Canadian Arctic all the way to Russia. They all come to this giant uh, eelgrass filled lagoon every year and then they take off from there and fly to the west coast of North America. But it's just a spectacular migratory hub that is super important um, to a lot of birds. And and then it's all surrounded by a ring of incredible volcanoes. So when we first were going up there, you know, all we really knew about was the the goose migration and that spectacle. And then once we actually got there and saw like, whoa, this is like a lot of places in Alaska, full of bear, wolves, fish, walrus, huge numbers of harbor seals, sea otters. And then to see this like this ring of stratovolcanoes covered in snow surrounding it all. It, it's truly one of the most spectacular places I've been in in Alaska. It's just so much compressed into one small area. So, so we've been working on that and trying to put some films together just to show people what's there. So when this road issue keeps coming up, people can say, okay, this is, here's what they want to put a road through. It's not just some name Eisenbeck, but here's a spectacular wilderness that's there for all Americans to go at any time. And, you know, people need to see that place before someone goes and puts a road through it. So a fishing cannery and a bunch of people can put some money in their pockets. Sounds like a, a dream job to me to be able to go up there and spend six weeks and work on projects like that and bring that stuff to life it's it's amazing yeah it's been a long road getting to where i'm at to, to get to do this kind of stuff and it's like you guys both know it sounds glamorous but you know 15 percent of the job is spectacular and you're seeing things that nobody else is ever going to see and you're just like it's incredible and the other 85 percent you're hauling 20 pelican cases around through airports and not eating well and sleeping on the ground and you know, not getting any exercise and just beating, beating yourself up. So, um, it's definitely hard work, but yeah, it's a, it's an incredible way to, you know, live your life for sure. Yeah, absolutely. What yeah. kind of uh, reliability in on projects like that? Reliability has got to be a big deal. So what kind of equipment do you carry? I've kind of made a conscious choice at one point that I was going to stick to doing cinematography with DSLRs, partly because a lot of this conservation work we do and the kind of films we're trying to make, it doesn't require, you know, 6K raw footage and to be perfect and beautiful. It, it's, you know, it's better to spend less money, have a small footprint, be nimble to move. So when I need to bring in a, somebody to shoot high speed or whatever, I usually bring somebody else in to you know, shoot on a F55, Sony F55 or a red camera or whatever. So I usually mostly shoot DSLR video. Um, and you know, for my photography, I usually shoot Nikon. For video, I usually shoot Canon. Um, should have one DCs or one DX Mark IIs right now. And uh, with or without an external monitor. And, and just keep it simple as I can for the most part. And then the reason for having Nikon for your stills, is that where you started and you're just more comfortable with stills that way? Or what's, why not just take one camera and just go with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I end up shooting a lot of stills on the Canons when I'm filming, but when I'm just doing dedicated photography, I pretty much always shoot Nikon stuff. Um, but yeah, it's the camera I grew up on. It's, I just prefer it. I prefer the way it feels in my hand. I prefer the image, the way the image, raw image files look. And it, you know, no, no matter how long I've been shooting Canon, intuitively, like the Nikon just is like part of me, and then the Canon is still like, oh, which way do I turn that dial? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I I try to set all my cameras up identical with custom settings so that they're all, you know, all the dials turn the same way for you know changing the aperture and exposure compensation or whatever. But uh, I just I just love I just always love Nikon cameras and lenses, so. So I guess when you talk about hauling 20 Pelican cases, obviously there's a lot of lenses, there's a lot of cameras, there's tripods, yeah. there's all that stuff. What do, What's your lens range when you, especially if you're doing birds, right? You're going to have to have yeah. some pretty big glass out there. Yeah. Um, depending on what I'm working on, I used to sometimes take an 800, but usually I take a 600 with a one, four and a two X. 
I don't shoot a lot of stills with the 2X, but I, for video, I think 2X looks fine. And then I'll often take a 500 too, just depending. If we're going to be hiking long distances, a lot of times I'd prefer to, or I, or I feel like I don't need a 600, I'll take the 500 instead. I use mostly the older version Canon lenses because the image stabilization on the newer, newest Canon lenses has a weird jiggle to it when you're, when you're touching the camera, which the old ones don't have. So I've been trying to figure out how to stockpile some of those old lenses for video specifically because the, the, the way the image stabilization works is just much better for video. And then uh, I used to use a uh, 200 to 400, the big 200 400 zoom, and I've recently decided to switch and go down to the 100 to 400 just, again, because of when you're on foot and portability and weight and footprint, um, that lens is sufficient. It's not as, again, a steady image with the image stabilization, but it's workable. And then, yeah, then I, you know, I use a, uh, 7200 and a 16 to 35, sometimes a 50 and sometimes from wide landscapes of things that are close, I use a 14 millimeter. That's pretty much the range I use, uh, for most of what I shoot. Pretty much runs the gamut. <laughs> yeah, it covers most of the bases. I, I don't have a, I don't have a like a mid range zoom like a lot of people have. A lot of people have like a twenty four to seventy, you know, the kind of that mid range normal lens zoom. I usually to cover that range. I just take you know the real small fifty millimeter lens and just have it in case I feel like I need something like that. But it's a lot smaller than having that that zoom lens. Have you have you uh, looked into mirrorless yet, or is that something that you just don't even want to mess around with? No, I guess the short answer is no, not really. I know it's there. Yeah, no, not really. Not yet. I mean, the thing I love about it is thinking about having a silent shutter because I do a lot of remote camera work and having that silent shutter and a little bit smaller footprint of a camera would be great. But I want like optimal uh, autofocus performance and some of those things, which I don't know if that's quite up to, to speed yet or not. Maybe you guys can tell me, but um, I don't think it is. I don't think there's anything that competes with that dual pixel and the Canon as far as autofocus goes. And, you know, it's so hard when you're trying to shoot a bird coming at you. I, I don't know. I mean, you can follow, you could do it manually. I shoot red, which basically is no autofocus at all. I mean, they have autofocus built into the camera, but it doesn't perform like a Canon would perform in the autofocus. So I just prefer just to go manual and there's, I've found nothing out there that compares with the, with the Canon autofocus once, especially with the one DX Mark two or the C, what is it? C 300 Mark two. Both of those have the dual pixel and you touch the screen. It'll, you know, with wildlife, it's hard just cause there's not a lot of contrast sometimes. And yeah. even in the best of situations, you're the autofocus is just going to have a hard time picking up a Brown bear in a Brown with a Brown background and just not a lot of contrast, but, yeah, I don't know. I switched this year. So I, I was doing moose for like six weeks this year and I would take my red out with the 70 to 300 on the red, just cause the weight is ridiculous, right? You, you're yeah. obviously no, I would take three batteries. I'm using the, the Anton Bauer bricks. Mm -hmm. I would take the, the red with the 70 to 300 just cause it's smaller and it's light, you know, yeah. but it's an, and it's an L series piece of glass. And then I was taking my two to four with the one DX and I could fit all that in one of my packs. And then I would just go and then obviously have a pretty beefy tripod. And then I've kept seeing all these people show up with these Sony's. And so, and I had one of the Sony batteries or bodies, but I'd never really, I didn't have any big glass for it. And while I was in Alaska, I went and bought a 100 to 400 and that reduced just the weight in my pack by I, I mean, I don't know. I'm guessing here, but probably 10 pounds. Well, maybe eight pounds, which is significant, right? That's a lot. Yeah. And so yeah. I would shoot stills with the Sony and then I would shoot video with the red, which that's kind of a trade off because I, I used to get away with shooting DSLR 1DX Mark II, 200 to 400. I could get 4K video and have the autofocus capabilities. But when you're putting on whatever five to 15 miles a day it starts adding up and you you know yeah yeah and like i'm turning 50 this year and i'm like i'm realizing that you know everything i can take out of my bag from here on out is a good thing like <laughs> i'm already beating myself up crawling all over the ground and rocks and you know walking over tussocks and rocks and rough terrain so any any weight 
I can drop is is always good from here on out. <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I totally agree yeah. with you, hundred yeah. percent. So when you're out in the field like that for long periods of time, do you guys take a generator for your batteries, or you're trying solar, or what do you guys do? If we are somewhere where we can't charge batteries, we have a generator usually. I can't think of any trips we've ever done where we didn't either have access to power or we just took a generator. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's a way around it. Well, especially with the red batteries, there's no way I'm going to be able to charge an Anton Bauer yeah. battery with solar on a consistent basis. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be super challenging with those big brick batteries like that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, it sounds, uh, I like the idea of just doing the DSLR because it does give you so much more mobility. Yeah. And I mean, my, also my rationale has been, you know, with the way that card technology is progressing with the new card formats that have, once the technology is fully realized that the read write speed capability is potentially so fast that I'm thinking DSLRs are going to be shooting red quality video within how many years? I don't know. I mean, just seeing how things have progressed in the last 10 years, you know, eventually it's, it's going to not matter. And why haul that big camera around <laughs> if I don't ever have to? Yeah. It, it does give me great pains when, when I have someone along who's shooting one, though, and I look at the footage, it's just subtly the colors and everything is, you know, you, you are giving something up, but most people other than the cinematographer don't ever know it, you know? Right. Yeah. You must be touching on the, the CF Express that everybody keeps talking about the read write speeds and, and also sheer volume of data that you can transport with those things. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, where's my, uh, yeah, what's the, the XQD cards that are in the Nikon D850? Um, if you read about what, you know, the CF, the CF technology kind of reached its max as far as data transfer speeds and what, what they could get out of that technology. And if you read about what the tech, these technologies have the potential to become as they keep improving it, you know, you'll be able to record insane amounts of data onto these cards compared to a CF card, you know, rapidly. So it, once the cameras catch up and they, that technology continues to improve, I think, you know, obviously the video qualities is going to continue to improve in those smaller cameras. Yep. Yeah. The only reason I keep doing the red is just so I can future proof the footage, hopefully, and anything I yeah. shoot, you know, my biggest concern, and we talk about it on the podcast occasionally, you know, my concern is always when you get something that you'll never see again, you know, if you get some sort of an interaction between a, a, a kill or something that's going on in the natural world, that's what allows me to get up and throw that pack on my shoulders and say, okay, I'm going to take the yeah. extra 10 pounds just because, who knows what's going to happen today? Yeah, yeah, that definitely crosses my mind too. Because you know, a lot of these projects that I'm doing, I'm going and filming critically endangered birds around the world, and some of these may never be filmed again. They may have never been filmed. So, you know, having the absolute highest quality capture of the the lives of these animals preserved forever is important. So that's definitely a you know consideration when you're thinking about you know, those quality trade-offs. Uh, but one thing, you know, one, one bird I worked on probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago now is I went and kind of did the first filming of a critically endangered bird called the spoon-billed sandpiper in uh, Chukotka and far, you know, si Siberia across from Alaska. And it, and it had never been filmed before. I basically was up there without a field assistant with an ATV in the middle of nowhere for two and a half months chasing you know a bird around that's the size of a sparrow and i would have loved to have shot that on a, a red or something like that but i never would have been able to keep up with it find it stick with it if i had been lugging this giant thing around you know i think a lot of videographers that shoot big cameras also i feel like the tendency is to plop that big thing down and shoot everything from one spot or just move it infrequently rather than really getting the camera into the very best places for for different shots you know the the dslr allowed me to really keep moving keep following the birds keep my stamina up but also to you know to get it 
an inch off the ground on the tundra quickly or whatever to really, you know, shoot it the way I wanted to shoot it. Where a big camera, I might have just plopped it down somewhere and sat there all day <laughs> and waited for the birds to come to me and been shooting down on it a little bit and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of, you know, trade-offs for all that stuff. What do you use for a tripod? Usually I use a, a, I use a Miller, I can't remember the model number, but Miller with the Sackler FSB-8 head on it um, for my big tripod. And then if I'm just shooting stills, I usually use a, a Gitzo with a Wimberly head or a, a Arca Swiss ball head with smaller lenses. So usually I have both those tripods along on a trip. Not necessarily taking them both in the field every day, but uh, one of those two tripods. And I also, you know, use a lot of like ground pods, you know, especially on the tundra stuff where I just have a small little thing that I just, you know, right at ground level. I don't really have the option to get up high, but I can, again, move quickly. I'm usually you know, get on a tussock or something where I have a really intimate eye level view of things. So, you know, alternate types of tripods are I'm a big fan of that. Yep. Just more weight though, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. You touched on a couple of things, and I, I want to get into one specific project that you did. But you touched on a couple of things. Number one, getting cameras into the best location, and number two, you know, trying to figure out the challenges of being able to capture footage or images of certain species. And one of the species, and we can throw the link in the show notes to your video on YouTube. One of the projects that you did. It caught my eye because it was in, in my part of the world. Uh, but the sagebrush sea that you guys did for, which ended up on PBS. But I think again, it was also one of those trying to get it in front of the right people because they were making decisions on the sage grass at that time. Uh, but you filmed some ferruginous hawks and you did so, you know, recognizing the behavior of the birds and, and how kind of flighty they were. Uh, you recognize that you weren't going to be able to do it, you know, with, uh, in a traditional manner. So yeah. you guys made some changes. So I kind of want to pick your brain on how you were able to capture that footage because if, and, and listeners make sure that you go to YouTube, we'll throw the link into the Fruginous Hawk footage and see exactly how this was done and the footage that was captured as a result. But I kind of want to get your description of how you came across that or how you decided to go about it in that manner. Yeah, so, you know, Fruginous hawks and are, are a ground-nesting hawk, pretty much. Um, in many cases, they're not even on a cliff. They're just on a slope. So they're very vulnerable to predators and that kind of thing. So they're not like a red-tailed hawk that's, you know, nesting in a tree, you know, where you may live, um, where you could walk near the tree and the hawk's going to just stay in the nest. It knows it's safe. You're not a threat. Fruginous hawks and a lot of prairie raptors, you know, as soon as they see anyone near the nest, they're just gone. And oftentimes they, you know, they're, they're straight up in the air in the sun as a speck looking down, watching what's going on. And when, whatever the, the threat or animal is that was near the nest is gone, they come back. So without going to great lengths and trying to build some hidden bunker blind or something to film a bird like that, we worked with some VM, VLM biologists to identify, you know, handful of nests and probably five or six nests in uh, southern Wyoming that we thought were good candidates to try to do some remote camera filming. So what we did for the particular nest, I think there's two nests in the show, but the one where there's, you know, grown up chicks in the nest is, you know, took a very small DSLR camera footprint, camouflaged it, covered it with a bunch of stuff, made one nest visit, set the nest up, um, set the camera up, you know, on the nest. Uh, maybe 20, 15, 20 feet away, and then ran electricity and computer cable basically to the camera. So I'm not, you know, I can't remember what the distance was from where I was operating the camera from, but you know, hundreds of feet away, uh, we had a, a blind with a generator and a laptop, and uh, actually we, we brought we had car batteries. I had an assistant bring you know bringing up and swapping up car batteries up this mountain where we were filming <laughs> it's nice not to have to do that but so we're running the computer off a car battery running the the uh it was a 1dc probably canon 1dc camera i think it had a 50 millimeter lens on it and basically you know it's kind of glitchy when you're running running a computer cable that long running power that long there's a lot of like okay, the camera it won't recognize the camera and you're turning things on and off and but for the most part you were able just to run, you know, continuous footage on the nest over, you know, a period of 
three or four days to get the, the nest behavior we wanted to get with adults coming in, feeding the chicks, bringing these ground squirrels in and uh, chicks tearing apart the ground squirrels and eating and all that kind of stuff. Um, but basically, you know, once the camera was there and we're off in the blind, we're so far away, we're off the parents' radar and they just start behaving naturally pretty, pretty rapidly. So that's something I would recommend, you know, people that don't have a really strong, intimate knowledge and about birds or wildlife go out and do. Um, you know, we were working with biologists from the BLM out there. We had permission to do it. And, you know, we, just as far as the greater good goes, you know, we thought that footage was valuable to to the story of, of this part of the world. So we made the decision to, to do it. But it came out pretty cool. It, it was really neat to see <laughs> that's the largest chick, you know, it just swallows this incredibly huge. I think they were, uh, I can't remember if they're white-tailed prairie dogs, I think. Um, but it's neat to just be able to sit there in a tent, you know, in the blind with the computer screen and just watch hour after hour, you know, how these birds interact and behave. And um, it's pretty pretty spectacular lo- location where we shot them to. So you guys basically just shot tethered, so you're recording everything on the computer yep. itself? Let me think. I, I can't remember. I think I might have had uh, some drives. I probably had some drives that I was dumping to sure. as sure. we were going. But yeah, yeah, I think we're probably recording directly onto the computer and then dumping files onto the drives. Yeah. That is thinking outside the box to get what you need to get without disturbing the behavior of the bird and, and kind of letting them go along about their day. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the best way to do things, you know, especially sure. especially this, you know, the last – 20 years we've gone from, you know, you could go to the only place you'd see another guy with a big lens would be Yellowstone or Everglades National Park or Denali. And now you go out to your local park and there's people with big lenses. So the the combined footprint of all these people chasing wildlife around these days, you know, definitely has the potential to have a big impact. So anything we can do as individual photographers to to minimize our impact and work in ways that, you know, work in ways where other photographers aren't working and and you're really taking care of the animals is super important. Yeah. We always talk about putting the animal first, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily about the image. It's about the animal. If you can capture the behavior, that's fantastic. But the animals, the good of the animal comes before any image. And I, the reason I want to talk about that is because it's a great example. You needed that footage to tell the whole story, but you did it in such a way that it limited the impact on, on the nest and on the, on the hawks themselves. Yep. And that's definitely always the goal. For sure. Well, I think that's becoming more and more prevalent too. As this technology progresses, much like you were talking about with the cards, I've been doing a lot of research here lately on camera traps, and I've used regular trail cameras for some projects, but you're not getting the quality, right? So then you want to move up to a DSLR or a mirrorless or whatever and build a box and, you know, let it sit there for six months to get this footage that you may never get any other way. And I think as it just keeps going at that, that is a really cool way to do. I think you'll get stuff that you wouldn't get any other way. And then you will also minimize that disturbance for sure in a big way. Yeah. It's just hard to figure out. I mean, it's like you were talking about just figuring out the cable, just all these little parts and pieces and, you got to get this custom part from this guy and then yep. test it. And, uh. Yeah. Camera trapping is really frustrating. I've got a couple, I've got a, uh, Nikon D 800 set up as a camera trap and a uh, Panasonic GH five camera trap that I use for video sometimes. And it's like <laughs> 90% of the time it's something goes wrong. At least, you know, it's like I was actually going through some photos yesterday to pull some stuff out of a I was working on blue throated macaw, which is another critically endangered bird in Bolivia. And the area I was working is full of big cats and, you know, it's kind of flooded savanna. And I was clicking through my camera trap because I I was running a couple of camera traps out there and it really got nothing. I've got the picture, a beautifully lit, perfect rear end picture of a giant anteater. And then I've got a beautiful picture of the rear end of a, a feral hog's testicles. <laughs> 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 and that's pretty much all I got. <laughs> oh, so it's just so frustrating. It's so, you know, something's always going wrong. Yeah. Some but when it wrong. does work, it's like there's, yeah. you just can't replace that. Yeah, it's one of those kind of niches of photography where you think you can do that and do the, the five other things you're trying to do. It's like it's it's something you 
it's a, there's a reason people specialize in that at this point because it is complicated. You do have to put in a lot of time and it can be just like your full attention goes to that to get it done right and, and be persistent with it and keep, keep at it. I've always been the more of the, okay, I'm going to casually try to pick up some camera trap shots while I'm doing all my other stuff, you know, and it's just like, there's not enough, uh, effort to go around to, to make that successful and everything else on, a, on most occasions. So, so I haven't been that successful with that up to date. <laughs> no, I can see that. I mean, I've tried it even thinking, okay, well, it sure be cool to have a moose walking over a camera and you could do it with a GoPro, right? But having the time and the forethought and actually guessing which way this animal is going to walk. Are you know? Are you going to be able to set it out there? You can't. I, it's even something that simple, I can't pull off. <laughs> yeah. And then when you throw in, you know, working with flash and lighting, like to me, that's the where it just puts it out of reach. A lot of times, is getting your you get your lighting wrong. And am I gonna am I gonna use camera settings that work at night or ones that work at day, balanced with natural light? Or you know, there's just there's a lot of choices to make and all that that whole world. Yep. For sure. Yeah. Well, we should get into the reason why Ron actually contacted you in the first place. Yeah. So as part of your gear, obviously, is these Traeger pan blinds. And being a grouse photographer and, and kind of living in this area where we've got several different grouse species, this blind setup, because I've I tried to use, you know, kind of traditional blinds, but they were way too big far too big to be packing around. And then, you know, I do a lot of shooting when I'm by myself. I do a lot of shooting with uh, ghillie suits and I'll throw ghillie material over the cameras and that works great, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily the best option when you've got multiple people, you're going to have movement or you need to instruct somebody. So you need to have some movement. You need to have the ability to see what they're doing. And these tragopan blinds are built for photography. And now is that something that you guys pack out in the field also? Uh, yeah. I mean, I always, I always take a, lots of different blind options with me, space allowing, uh, depending on what I'm doing. I definitely all, always take a, a, you know, a pop-up blind, some kind of blind, you know, now I always use Tragopan blinds. Um, and I usually do take just camouflage netting, camouflage material. I often take like a turkey blind that I could just set up like as a barrier, like a low wall to lie behind, depending on where I'm working. But yeah, these tragopan blinds, I, you know, like most people for years and years, I was using hunting blinds, you know, they, you're cutting holes in them so you can shoot from ground level. You know, you walk out to use it and the thing's flattened out by the wind because they're made of these cheap materials that, you know, they last a season. And I basically, you know, treating them like disposable objects. And I was working in Southern China, maybe seven, eight years ago now. And I met a French photographer who was living there. He was actually helping me to find and film spoonbilled sandpipers in South China. And he's in the luggage business and he's a super avid bird watcher and bird photographer and he's a french guy and he had started developing these blinds you know specifically for wildlife photography and really putting a lot of thought into them working with some factories to to start developing them and like immediately i'm like i gotta get i gotta bring these to north america because we're using these crappy blinds um i'm tired of it these are awesome and since then we have gone through numerous four or five more iterations in the blind to just add it, make the quality better and add some other blind models. And now that's, you know, those are the only blinds I ever use because they last a long time. You know, you've got all these features like being able to shoot at ground level, uh, different lens sleeves, you know, net lens sleeves or solid lens sleeves, you know, place the ability to use flash with um, um, accessories that turn them in, you know, add vestibules so you can sleep in them at night, have a ground floor, um, you know, all these things that photographers would like to have in a blind. There's more things I'm not naming right now, but so, yeah, I started importing them to North America basically. And, you know, it's just been a, it's been fun to, to work on. It's I'm kind of more of a labor of love. It's like they're, they're good blinds and I want people to, to have good blinds, <laughs> you know, not ones that are getting thrown away. And, and one of the things, you know, I was thinking about, uh, earlier when we were talking about just, you know, the impact of the number of photographers out, out there these days, you know, a lot of photographers go to these same places where wildlife is habituated to people and they end up shooting the same images, you know, like, you know, wood ducks. I can think about, you know, half a dozen places I know in North America where people go to shoot wood ducks because they're used to people, you know, in a certain park in a certain place, but wood ducks occur across 
North America, and most people might have them, you know, five minutes from their house, but you can't shoot them because they're so skittish in most places. And that's true with a lot of wildlife. But when you're using blinds, it like opens up all these opportunities much closer to home where you can work alone, not be out there with all these other photographers, have a smaller impact, um, both by not driving across the country to go shoot a wood duck, but also because you're not, you know, hammering these places where people are all shooting. Um, and it's, it's just a really fun process to like start looking around where you live and seeing where wildlife move throughout the year and thinking ahead seasonally to like, oh, that's, that'd be a great spot that wetland to set up and, you know, shoot a few mornings in the fall and you get some more unique images that don't look like they've all been shot in the same place. And, you know, the other thing I like about using blinds these days is just the fact that when you've really thought about what you're doing, targeted at species, you're basically setting up and waiting for that animal to come to you and it's behaving naturally. You're not running around pursuing animals, pushing animals, but you've really been strategic and set up in a way that you're going to get natural behavior and you have virtually no impact on on the on the wildlife. And I think again that's a more and more important the more people that are out there doing it. So I mean even if it's in your own backyard, you know, you can figure out stuff to do with lines and get images you would never get if you're just walking around. So yeah, yeah, I've been importing them here for, you know, five, six six years. We've got just came out with a whole new update on all of our four major blind models. Uh, and another, you know, I've started trying to work on some other products with him of things that I've always wanted. And one of them is going to come out. Uh, I should actually be getting the shipment in the next couple months is we started developing uh, some waders for tripod legs. Because I don't know about you guys, but I ruin all my tripods and their leg locks with salt water and sand and mud and just filling them up with water. So we've got a first iteration of some tripod like leg socks are going to be called Avocet tripod waders that you can just slip on your tripod legs when you're doing, you know, shooting in, in the water. Um, and then there's a few other things we're working on, too. But, um, yeah, it's Tragopan blinds. Those, uh, yeah, those would reduce the need to take your tripod apart and clean it all the time anytime you're shooting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got some absolutely destroyed tripods in my closet here, you know, really oh, expensive yeah. tripods. Yeah, I've know. got several. I know Mike does, and our friend Doug Gardner, he probably goes through multiple a year as much time as he spends in the swamp and then in and around the salt water as well. But Yeah, yeah so that should be a pretty cool thing to, to throw in the bag, too. So what's the price range? I mean, we're, we're going to put links in the show notes just so that people can go right to the site and look at the different things. Yeah. But if you had to, I guess there's no perfect blind, right? Because you'll pick right. a blind based off the situation. But do you have a favorite or do you have something that, that you would recommend that if, if you're just wanting to get into this kind of thing, this is the one to use or this is the one to buy? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of like the the most basic one is like a traditional pop-up style, hooped pop-up style blind, uh, which is called the grouse. And that that wouldn't be my first choice, but that's the most you know economical choice. My first choice would be like for one-man blind, the Tragopan V6. Um, it's a little bit bigger. It uses this kind of hub system to erect it. So it's easier than trying to fold up a pop-up blind. I get a lot of messages from, you know, particularly older people that have trouble folding up the pop-up blinds and putting them back in the sack and that kind of stuff. So it's a much easier to put up. You put it up in like 30 seconds. And this blind, the, the V6 also, we're developing a lot of accessories for it. So it's a small one-man blind, but we've also got a vestibule that can be zipped in place in the door. So you can add this long area off the back where you could camp in the blind or just have that, you know, leg space covered if you want to be shooting at ground level or you just want more space to throw your gear. A similar thing we have that you can put on the door is an awning, which doesn't have a floor, but again, provides like a storage vestibule outside of the blind. Um, there's an option where you can take two of these blinds and connect them together. So if you're working with a, in a workshop or a client, you can each be in your separate blind, but you have a tunnel that connects them where you can talk or pass gear or whatever. And then there's some other smaller accessories, but this is the blind we're focused on really making, you know, having all the bells and whistles, have all the accessories available for it, really easy to put up, carry around. And then for a two-man blind, I mean, usually even for just myself, I'll use, if I'm not trying to use a really small blind, I'll use the Monal blind, which is the most expensive blind we, we carry, but it's a two-person blind. And you know, two people can shoot side by side out of the front of it. But what I like to do is shoot out of the side of it and use it like a one-person blind. And then I have lots of room behind me. It's got a floor that you can remove or leave in place. You can sleep in it. So it's more spacious for gear and that kind of stuff. So if I'm doing a really long stint in a blind and I don't need to have a really small footprint, I'll just use that bigger blind. Um, 
just so I have more more room to stretch my legs, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and then the last blind we make is basically a lay-down blind, super low profile. It's just for laying and shooting at ground level, um, and that's called the uh, the hokey. So that would work good for what for the Ron for the birds for the grouse. Yeah, that'd be a def- if you have no visual obstructions, you know, where you might need to raise up two feet off the ground for some reason, and you want to be sh- just shooting at ground level. That's a great blind. You're laying down. One of the great things about it is, you know, if you ever worked on a grouse leck, right at dawn, you often are contending with the shadow of the blind because you've got this, you know, four or five foot tall blind. If you got, if you're shooting front lit subjects, you've got this big shadow going out into the leck. So having this low profile blind kind of eliminates that shadow in the early hours. It's another kind of advantage of being, you know, just super low, low to the ground. That's awesome. And yeah. how do they hold up to the wind? As you know, Ryan's wicked. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm, all I've gotten is really great feedback from a lot of people. There's a, a guy who's been using him up in, up in Alberta, shooting birds of prey on cliffs and stuff. And he says he leaves it up all winter in the wind and it's been great. I've got another guy in Australia who keeps emailing me that he leaves it out for six months in the Australian bush and the sun and the heat and the rain and the wind. And it's just, he goes out there and it's still standing. We started making it out of a, you know, pretty rugged, polyester which is also coated on the internal side now with it's called like an isotherm coating but it basically reflects solar radiation so hypothetically keeps it cooler inside and it's makes it completely pitch black inside so it's um so the materials are good you know all the little components that buckles and clips and zippers the zippers are silent you know really quiet zippers which you know, back with hunting blinds, I remember many occasions where I was trying to <laughs> use the zipper and they're so loud. You know, in some cases, like you can't be making a, a loud zipper noise when you're in a blind. So, you know, all those little thoughtful things we're trying to pay attention to, to, to make them as effective as they can be for, for photography and for being comfortable. Sure. Or as, as comfortable as you can be, you know, in a blind all day. That's excellent. Yeah. It sounds like you've addressed all the things that I've dealt with over the years. I mean, there's nothing worse than sitting in a blind and you feel like you're, going to come out as a baked potato yeah yeah all so addition you know we also have most of the blind or all four of the blinds have different types of ventilation um things built into them the v6 have some roof uh little roof uh ports that can pop open that have screen so you get more airflow the monal has a big screened portion on both uh sides of the roof so we try to make airflow good inside the blinds as well because yeah you can really bake in a, in a blind that is for sure mm-hmm. and yeah. conversely if you're out there now do you with the and i apologize i haven't looked at all the all the different options but mm-hmm. do you have like the snow type camouflage available as well no we don't um that's one thing i've been talking about is you know how can we build like skins for blinds that you already have so you're just putting like maybe another layer over it. I do use, you know, sometimes I use camouflage netting and stuff if I want to break it up or make it look different. But, you know, most I think most people think that, you know, blinds need to really blend in with the environment. And for the most part, most animals just don't want to see a human form or movement or sound. It doesn't matter what kind of color the blind is. It could be bright red out in a field and the animals, most species are still going to stand right outside if they don't think there's a human around so we haven't gotten you know really in depth in like trying to produce a bunch of different colors and and that kind of thing Um, it'd be nice to you know in the future work towards a few other ones just because people you know people just visually (laughs) like camouflage to match obviously well i agree with you 100 percent on that i don't think you need it i mean you can always throw something white over it or just buy a piece of white camouflage or whatever that pattern is that you want to just put over it and you're good yeah. And I only wear camouflage if I want to hide from other people. I don't That's ever exactly wear camouflage <laughs> to hide That's from the I animals. I feel like I could be wearing a bright red coat and it doesn't really matter. Once once you've yeah. established that relationship and you know what you're doing and you've got intimate knowledge, I don't think that matters. Right. And I mean, for me, my philosophy, you know, there are there's been certain species of places in my life where I'm like, I absolutely have to be hidden to have any chance of getting any shot of this animal because they're hunted here or whatever it is. But for the most part, my philosophy with animals is I want them to know I'm there and and to be become comfortable with me, not to hide and, 
you know, spook them or stalk them. I want them to see me slowly over time, get used to me. And if they're accepting, they know I'm there, but I'm not a threat and they, they go about their business. And, it, you know, I think when you're trying to hide yourself too much, you have sometimes even more of a ability to startle them or, you know, whatever it is. But generally it's just like you want them to become used to you, not to, to try to hide from them because animals are so, so much vastly more perceptive than we can even imagine that I think most of the time when people think they're hidden, even when they're blind, <laughs> they almost know there's something there, but it's just, it seems non-threatening, you know? Agreed. I think smell is such a huge thing that is so hard to conceal. I mean, I don't care what you do. It's still, smell is always going to give you away. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. I love, I mean, I, in, in Europe, people use blinds like crazy. And I think it's because they don't have these national parks and what tame wildlife like we do in this country. And people have to go to the local wood lot and figure out how to, to shoot stuff close to home. And so I know a lot of people historically in the United States haven't, haven't embraced that tactic, but uh, it's something like I, I really enjoy figuring out a local spot that I, you know, I may drive by going to the grocery store, I'm like, oh, that little tiny wetland is always full of ducks in November. I'm going to set a blind out there and get out there a few mornings and get some shots that, you know, are, are different than what you would get if going to the same wetland everybody else goes to to shoot the same duck shots or whatever, whatever it is, you know. So I think it's fun. I like it. I think you're exactly right. I think uh, all the points you made earlier, the fact that you can shoot somewhere and get something that's independent of everybody else and you're shooting, it just gives you a whole different outlook on what it rises you above. I mean, there's so many people taking images these days of the same thing. Yeah. You, you got to figure out a way to set yourself apart. Yeah. Yeah. And the blinds will do it. Yeah. Well, you got anything else, Ron? No, I was just going to plug your, you've also got a, well, in combination with the Cornell lab, a book out uh, that I saw the, the living bird or, is that correct? Yeah, that was a book I did with, with the, uh, that was a book of my photography, um, that we did a couple, two or three years now, two or three years ago. It's a, yeah, it's a basically a coffee table kind of book for photography. It's got essays by some pretty notable people like, uh, Barbara Kingsolver and, uh, Jared Diamond and, uh, the director of the Cornell Lab, John Fitzpatrick, um, Scott Widensall, who's a a popular bird uh, author. And then also I have a, actually I have a basically a field guide to bird photography that's coming out and it should be out in March by Mountaineers Books. I think it's already listed on Amazon. It's called uh, Photography Birds, Field Techniques and the Art of the Image. Sweet. <laughs> so that'll, that'll be out in uh, in March, I believe. Yeah. So we'll put links up to those as well. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I, this has been a long time coming, trying to trying to mesh our schedules. So I, you know, as with most of the time, everybody's busy. But I thank you again for allowing us to have some time together with you. One thing before you go, do you have a Facebook or Instagram that you can throw yes. out for people to follow? Yeah, definitely my Instagram at Garrett Vin. Um, it's G E R R I T V Y N and also at Tragapan Blinds as an Instagram account. Um, and you can probably find your way to most of my other stuff through there. Will you spell the blinds, Tragapan Blinds? Will you spell that yeah, out? It's, it's Tragapan, T-R-A-G-O-P-A-N. And the website's really easy. It's photographyblinds.com. We appreciate your time. Cool. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys. Thanks. Thanks for all you're doing. Thank you. To see more of our team's work, you can go to Facebook, Instagram, our YouTube channel, and of course, at wildandexposed.com. I want to spend, send a special shout out to our hardworking and talented producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to create this show for your listening enjoyment. And no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to take the time to hit that subscribe or follow button and to give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or a thumbs up, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.